Well, I love a good story. Uh, I think that is probably something that might make me be similar to you. Because as I look around our culture, we are fascinated and we are obsessed with stories. Uh, some of our favorite stories are maybe some of our favorite movies. I have a little collage here on the screen of very memorable uh, and favorite movies, whether it be Rocky, Harry Potter, uh, Back to the Future, E.T., Indiana Jones, of, or of course, Star Wars. Uh, now, we love these stories, and for maybe one reason we love these stories is because they help us get caught up in another world. They're, they're fantasy. They're, they're wonderful. And some of us have gotten so caught up in some of these stories that we start to refer to ourselves as if we are like the characters. Or maybe you've done a personality test or assessment that told you which character in Lord of the Rings you are most like. Or maybe you've done something similar. And we just love stories. Uh, I always, when I'm watching something, uh, specifically something of fantasy or um, fiction, I love thinking about like, if I were in the same situation? What would I do? Like, if I were Frodo, would I have given in to the power of the ring? Like, whatever it might be, we love stories. Now, we also, I think, love stories because they remind us of our own stories or how we maybe connect with our own story. So think this morning, just a minute, what is your story? Imagine we're sitting together over a coffee and you and I are going back and forth and I ask you, I say, what is your story? Now, some of us would maybe begin at the very beginning, right? My story begins here. Some of us would start a little bit further on. I've asked this question lots, and it's always interesting. And what I usually say back to people is like, start wherever you want. Like, what means, what matters to you about your story? And so some people start a little bit later on. And you hear people share their stories, and some people talk about a story that their parents told them, that maybe they had parents that weren't loving and weren't encouraging in the best ways. And so they oftentimes live in a story that is really discouraging, really disappointing, Maybe uh, you live with a story of my parents thought I was nothing, and so therefore the rest of my life I'm going to try to prove myself to my parents and tell them, like, I'm just going to prove myself that I am something, and I don't care what you said about me. Or maybe it's a good parent story. Maybe it's a story of, like, my parents encouraged me, and so I'm trying to just continue to live in light of how they encourage me. Maybe for you it's the cultural story of what is around you. Maybe it's the American dream. You hear some people talk about their story this way of, you know, I'm just trying to get a better job so that I can provide more for my family. And then, you know, once I get the best job, everything will be fine. And, you know, my family will be satisfied. We all have these stories. So think for a minute about what story you live. Because here's, here's sort of the big point and the big idea that I'd love for us to understand today as we're going to transition to Hebrews, is that the story that you live in shapes the life that you live. All right, I'm going to say that again. The story you live in shapes the life that you live. If you live a story that is maybe a negative perspective on the past that you live in or what your parents said about you, it shapes the way that you think about yourself in the present. If you live an American dream-esque story or the story of the world around us or the nation in which we live, it, it impacts the way that you engage with the world around you. If you live a story or maybe it's a story about a relationship Maybe you feel like you should have a relationship or that everybody else around you is in a relationship. You begin to, or that is influencing your own story because you're like, you're feeling negative things about yourself because you're not a part of one or not in one. Do you see what I'm saying? The story you live in shapes the life that you live. It, it, it informs your perspective on the life that you live. Now, this is really, really important 
And it's one of the reasons the scriptures speak so much life. And what many of us maybe don't understand about the Bible itself is that the Bible is one grand story. I was uh, with Spencer in Seattle recently, and we were listening to a teacher by the name of Jeff Vanderstelt, and one of the reasons he was sort of pressing into when people uh, only read their Bible on their smartphones, what they miss out on if if you're only engaging with the scriptures in that way, is you're forgetting that the, the Bible is a story that has a start and a finish, and if all you're ever doing is just clicking on this this book and this chapter and this verse, you're missing on the whole fact that this is this is a story. That must be told and that that we actually live in and that we're part of and God has invited us into. It's a beautiful thing. Now, why have I provided this introduction? Well, as we've been studying Hebrews, what we realize is that Hebrews is not just some isolated letter or book or sermon as we've been referring it to, but Hebrews is actually a story that we are actually all also being encouraged with. There's truths that come out of the story or this letter to the Hebrews that all of us can be encouraged by. Now, if you remember, as we've been studying, and today's actually the last time that we're going to be in Hebrews, at least for this time in our church life, But one of the the things that our author is realizing that he's writing to a group of persecuted Jewish Christians. These are people that were raised Jewish that came to know the good news of Jesus. They came to understand the redemptive plan of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they are being persecuted both physically and in other ways to turn back, to go away from this newfound faith. And so what our author is encouraging them in is to, to remind them that you are part of this grand story. Your lives are not isolated. And the story you live in will shape the life that you live. And so no matter where you are at today, I want you to just take a moment, and I'm literally going to pause, and I'm going to ask you to consider what is the story that you are living in right now? All right, so answer that for yourself. What is the story that you are living in right now? What's the plot? Who are the characters? What's the conflict? And who's the hero? So the next question for us today to consider, well, what is the Christian story that our author is trying to remind these people of? And I've come across a few resources, a few storylines that I think are extremely helpful. Uh, Spencer and I were introduced to one just a couple of weeks ago, which you'll see on the screen, which I think is is excellent. But this first one, and you've heard, if you've been around uh, here often, you've heard of this first one probably, Creation. This is the story in which God creates all that is. He brings, he breathes life into the creation. There is no separation between God and his creation. The second part of the story tragically is introduced in page three, Genesis three. Human beings rebel against their creator God. They want power for themselves. They start questioning whether or not God actually has their best interests at heart at the temptation of the serpent. And so as a result, their relationship with God is broken. The next part of the story goes from there in Genesis 3 all the way to the Gospels in which then we're introduced to this person of Jesus who claims that he's not just a man, he's also God. And that he's come to the earth to redeem and restore all that is broken. 
And so through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus promises that if we trust in what he has done for us, we too will experience what he then promises, which will be at the end, which is restoration. And so if we use this storyline, what you and I realize is that we're kind of caught in the middle between redemption and restoration, right? And, and you think about this for a minute. You, you look at the world around you and you see some redeeming qualities. You see some redeeming traits. But then you also realize that there's also an incredible amount of brokenness. Like what happened earlier in the week in Toronto. That someone would grow so cold and angry at the world that they would choose to rent a van and run people over with it. So you live in that brokenness. You live in the tension of the already and the not yet where you see great things, but then you also experience terrible things and terrible brokenness. So we're caught between redemption and restoration. Another way of this story progressing is creation as we see that God creates. Then we have human, human, humanity's rebellion marked by this X. Then we have the promise in Genesis 12 of God showing up and saying to Abram, surely, truly, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And then I'm going to bless the nations in and through your family. And so then the progression of the Old Testament continues to redemption when Jesus again comes. And then Jesus ascends back into heaven. He commissions the first disciples to go and to be the church, to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then we have the introduction of the church awaiting Jesus returning in the final restoration. So here's my question. Do you live in light of this story? As you think about the story that you live, do you consider that you are part of this grand story of creation, of fall, of redemption and restoration? Because here's what I, what I believe, right? The story that you live in shapes the life that you live. And so if you're not living in light of this story, understanding that one day that there will be restoration and that there has been redemption, you're going to be looking for redemption in all of these different places, and you're going to be seeking restoration in a whole bunch of different places as well. So think about your own life and think about the people that live around you. We're all seeking redemption and we're all seeking restoration. Which story do you find yourself in? Is it this one? Or is it a different one? Because when Jesus says to Nicodemus, right? Remember a guy by the name of Nicodemus? If you know the Gospels, John 3.16, right? Some of us are aware of that verse. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you probably see John 3.16 on some sort of billboard. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Now, what's he saying? Nicodemus is like first thinking about the physiological realities of that, and he's like, <laughs> how am I going to do that? But Jesus is speaking of a spiritual rebirth, which will lead to a, a physical rebirth. And what he means by that is, Nicodemus, you need to begin living by a different story. Your identity needs to be changed. You need to live by a different story. So Nicodemus, which story are you living because here's, here's the reality, okay? Every week and every day, we are challenged to live by a different story than this one. Finding redemption, restoration in our own things. Every day, and even movies we watch. Who are the heroes? As you become fluent in understanding this gospel story, I begin watching movies differently. Who, who, what are they saying about creation? What are they saying about redemption? What are they saying about the fall, rebellion? What are they saying about restoration? 
I haven't seen Avengers Infinity War, but I'm sure it follows the same storyline because it's the best story. And if the law of God is written on all of our hearts, we're all desperate for this story. So what story are you living in? Because it will shape the life that you live. Well, with that, let's go to Hebrews 12, verse 18. And what I'm going to do is, this is going to be pretty fun, because we're just going to read through from 18 to the end of chapter 12, and then 13 to the end. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take pauses as we go through and ask the question, where in the story are we? Because as we go through the scriptures, what you realize is that all of these authors are writing in light of knowledge of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Because the story you live in shapes the life that you live. And so what he's wanting them to understand is your story is not isolated. Your persecution is not isolated. You are part of a grand story and Jesus is going to return. And you need to live in light of that as you think about your present. Your life is not isolated. You are part of God's grand story. Maybe you just need to hear that today. That you can have purpose and meaning in this life because you are part of God's incredible story. So Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come. All right, so he's talking present. For you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they, past, could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So, think about where we are in the story, okay? And uh, Missy, you can put up just the slide of just the outline, okay? We're the church, okay? If any of us were confused. We are the church. Where in the story is it past, present, or future that the author is referring to here? Where is it? Past. He's referring back to the promise. He's referring back, actually, specifically to Exodus 19, verses 10 to 20. You can write that down in your notes to actually revisit it, in which God descends onto a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he instructs Moses to tell the people, don't come near the mountain, because if they touch the mountain, they will die. That's how holy I am. They can't get close to me. And so all the people would come out of their tents and they'd watch and the earth shook and the mountain trembled because Moses was meeting with God. I mean, it was crazy that this was even happening. So what's he saying? He's referring back to the past to now make a comparison to the present. He continues, But you, but you, comparison, have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, where are we in the story now? present, and also a bit of future. 
that were awaiting the new Jerusalem. If you know uh, Revelation 21 and 22, that Jesus is going to descend in the new Jerusalem. And so we look forward to that day. But what's he saying? He's making this incredible comparison. He's saying, think back to what your ancestors had to, had to live with. If I can't get close to God, but now because of redemption, you can be in the very presence of God and not fear. Think about that for your life right now. What does it mean for you to be in the presence of God, the perfect holy presence of God, and not need to fear? Many of us live, if we're honest, at, at a distance from God because we don't really want to get too close. Yet here we can know that we are, can actually go into the presence of God because of redemption, because of what Jesus has done. Let's continue. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Present, right? For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth at that mountain, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Now this is straight up a warning referring to this comparison, right? In your present, do not refuse this Jesus. Do not refuse him. Because a day will come where you will need to stand before a perfect and holy God. And will you stand under the redemption of Jesus or will you stand outside of the redemption of Jesus? And will you actually be able to stand under that perfection and holiness of God? He's saying, no, you won't. You need Jesus. So the past must influence our present. Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This just got serious, right? What's he speaking of? He's speaking of the past and a future. When there's a promise, there will again also become and come a restoration. It's saying that there is a future day will, co will come when this shaking will happen. And outside things that are not part of this kingdom because of Jesus' redemption will fade away, will pass away, will not remain with God so in one sense, there is this warning. And the warning is clear here. A shaking is coming, right? There's, there's no escaping. Like, I wish I could sort of like read these verses and go like, oh, maybe there's no shaking. He seems fairly clear. A shaking is coming, but then it's also an invitation. Are you ready? Will you receive him, the unshakable king? Will you receive the unshakable king? So what does this story tell us so far? The story for followers of Jesus includes an unshakable king with an unshakable kingdom. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses in the message. He writes, Do you see what we've got? An unshakable kingdom. And do you see how thankful we must be? 
It says, not only thankful, but brimming with worship, deeply reverent before God. For God is not an indifferent bystander. He's actively cleaning house, torching all that needs to burn, and he won't quit until it's all cleansed. God himself is fire. Thank you, Eugene. This is, like, as I said, this is a warning, but it's also an invitation. And will you receive this invitation and sit under your unshakable king and be welcomed into an unshakable kingdom? You know, this is, um, if you haven't sort of caught on yet, this is, this is a bit in opposition to the world in which we live, right? That regardless of what the shaking looks like, you know, good people will be okay. But who gets to draw that line between good and bad? You see, what he's saying here as well is that there, there needs to be a cleaned house because what are we going to do about all the evil and injustice in the world? Because God is just. So one, who gets to draw the line? And then how are we going to rid the world of injustice? Like if, you, if, if, if what happened earlier in the week in Toronto doesn't get you fired up and angry, that was unjust. Well, where's, where's the final justice? Or as we've been, um, it's, it's, it's a very, I, I want to be just cautious in the way that I talk about this because there's so much at stake. But as you've been probably watching the news and been seeing people come forward with, with their abuse stories, does that make you cringe and go, this, there's an injustice in the world? And God says, this injustice cannot be in my presence because I am just and I am holy and I am good and I am perfect. We want justice. And God says, I am the judge. and I will shake the world. And if you don't stand under my life, your life will not save you. If you don't understand under my perfect life given to you, then you must stand under your own imperfect life. And so a shaking is coming. This is what he writes next. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Where's that in the story? Present. That's an instruction for you and I in light of what we know, of what Jesus has done, and the restoration is coming. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's why we can stand here and go, I exalt you, God. Get the focus off of me. I exalt you because of what you've done. Think about that. Off of me, onto you because of what you've done. You're holy. You're perfect. You're good. You consider me I'm nothing. I'm going to die. Friends, I don't remember what my great-great-grandfather did. Your great-great-grandkids are never going to remember what you did. But God and Jesus will still be on the throne. And there'll still be an unshakable kingdom. Scripture tells us we're like dust. Dust. What do we do with dust in our house? We sweep it away. Get out of here, dust. You're like dust for this king. So we ought to worship him beautifully. 
chapter 13, our, our author transitions to instruct the church in the present. Because he's saying, if, if these realities are true about what Jesus has done in redemption, and if restoration is one day going to come, we ought to consider how we ought to live in the present. And so he writes, let brotherly love continue. Oh my goodness, if we would just heed this, let brotherly love continue if we'd only love each other better. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Well, this is pretty interesting, right? Like, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Why should we not neglect to show hospitality to strangers? Because, because Jesus showed us hospitality. Because he welcomed us in. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, not just people you know. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He's referring back to the past. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Do we oftentimes consider those who are imprisoned and those who are mistreated? You know, it's been interesting watching the news, right, and seeing the, the things around North and South Korea. Are you, are you aware that there are Christians in North Korea in camps right now, in concentration camps, because they, some of them as simple as owning a Bible? May we pray that, that these people are released, that maybe there is something here going on with this North and South Korea thing. And maybe there becomes freedoms for Christians. Let's pray for that. Let's consider these folks. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. What? Let marriage be held in honor. Interesting. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Hold fast to marriage, to, to pure traditional marriage may be held in honor. This is the way that God gave us to actually go about into our world and into our society and, and bless the world around us. Two compliments coming together to glorify God. God who is holy other, us like him but yet different. God creates it to bring honor and glory to him. Marriage is not isolated. Marriage is part of a larger story. God's incredibly large story of two similar yet different individuals coming together to glorify God. That is the purpose of marriage. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is so like counterintuitive. I oftentimes, I, I'm, I'm guilty, right? I like things. Like shiny things. Um, it's hard to live in a place like Guelph and be um, a middle-class white guy and not like shiny things. It's, it's true. Like, we like shiny things. But what he's saying, what is he saying? Notice the point he makes. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So where's contentment to be found? In God, who will never leave us nor forsake us. Our money will leave us and it will forsake us. <laughs> right? You know this. Every time like a mortgage payment comes out or something unexpected, it's like, where are you going? You know, you need to replace your brakes. It's like, no, brakes. Brakes are money. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. For what can man do to me? An instruction, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. 
and imitate their faith. This, this past week, uh, a mentor of mine, I called him Grandpa Richard. He wasn't, in fact, my biological grandfather, but I called him Grandpa Richard because that's what we did. Maybe some of you were raised in families that way where you'd refer to somebody as uncle this or aunt that. They weren't, and so you'd always like, as you're talking about them, you sort of add this like clarifying point. They weren't actually my uncle and aunt, but like we just called them that because we were like super close. And this man was my grandpa Richard. And my grandpa Richard was a man who just loved the Lord. And he invited me in as a high school student. He owned a number of properties. And so he would invite me in to help him with construction projects. And I remember this one summer, my high school girlfriend of like two or three months, it was an amazing relationship, broke up with me. She broke up with me and I was like devastated. I was devastated. And I came home that night and I'm like weepy and tearful and I've got to get up and go to work in the morning for Grandpa Richard. And I show up and we're, we're putting siding on a house and, you know, I'm like, I'm weepy. <laughs> and Grandpa Richard in like the most beautiful, tough love is like, Matt, get over it. There'll be another one. And like, let's just keep going. And that was, that was my Grandpa Richard. And he went to be with Jesus this week. And so... Today, right, like, look, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. He was a leader in my life. He's also speaking to the local leaders. And then it says this, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is, this is both a challenge to those who sit under leadership and also those who are in leadership, right? That those who sit under the leadership, you must consider and remember your leaders, but then also for those that are leaders, we should be living lives where others can imitate our faith. Right? Like live a life worthy of a calling in which you've received. Live a life that other people can say, oh, that person's worth following. Like I want to imitate them. I pray that, that in some way I can be doing this with all of you, that I would live a life that is, that is, that is worth imitating. And I, and I fall short and I mess up, but I pray that I would continue as God would allow me by his grace to live a life that you would say I can imitate his faith. And then he makes this crazy point. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. After he's just token, talked about leadership, so what does this tell us? Jesus Christ is a leader that you can imitate. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he's the same forever. And what does this also tell us is that the gospel story never changes. You know, leaders will come and go, Systems will come and go. Governments will come and go. Nations will come and go. Like, people were pretty stoked on Rome when they were part of the Roman, right? Rome fell. Jesus will never change. The gospel story never changes. Verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted to them. Man, what a, what a challenging word to us today, the present in the church. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Saying that these strange teachings, they can't actually give you what they promise you. Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast. Hold fast. Do not swerve away. Verse 10 to 19. For we have an altar... This is going to get a little bit like, that was very clear. This suddenly he goes, let's switch this up a bit. For we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp. 
outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now what he does is he goes, he goes from present to past. And he, so what he's saying is rather than eating the right foods as per the old covenant, new covenant Christians feed on Jesus Christ. Saying Christ is the mediator of a new and better covenant enacted on new and better promises. And then he instructs them, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What is he saying? So I was like, what, what did he just read there? I'm going to have to revisit that. Here's some helpful clarifying words from uh, Albert Moeller in his commentary on this. He writes, Following Jesus means joining him outside the camp. The writer's people, those who are receiving this, were tempted to find their identity in Judaism and the Old Covenant. Instead of bearing his disgrace for the sake of Christ, they were looking for safety and security in something other than Jesus. Is that applicable to today? Absolutely. Thus, the author is telling us that we must go outside the camp, even if it means we must suffer, in order to shine forth as his disciples. Not shine, shine forth as his disciples. Read that last part again. Thus the author is telling us that we must go outside the camp, even if it means we must suffer, in order to shine forth as his disciples. So I'm going to ask you again, okay? Which story are you living in? Which story will you choose to live? Verse 17. Once again, he's going back to leadership. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Well, why? Why? The next part of the verse. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have, who will have to give an account. Ugh. Who wants that job? You know, I heard someone say once, if you can do anything other than be a pastor, do it. I think that was one of like, the best pieces of advice I ever received. Like, if you can do anything else than be a pastor or be a local church elder or sit in leadership, do it. So it's, an, it's a very good calling in many ways, but there are a lot of challenging days. So why do we obey our layers and submit to them? Because they're keeping watch over our souls, and that's not isolated. They then have to give an account to God one day about how they watched over you. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Now, I'm not going to make any points here because I, that might get a little bit biased, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. But then he says, verse 18, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to ask honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. I just love Paul's humility here. 
right? He's, he's calling, sorry, it might not be Paul. Uh, I slipped up there. Thank you, Cam. It might not be Paul. Some people think it's Paul. But I love the author's humility here, I should say, to write in this way, that as he's just touched on leadership, he says, pray for us that we may have a clear conscience. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought again, who was brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. I want to read that again. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That's a great line. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this is an amazing few verses because it touches both on the past, (laughs) it touches on the present, and then it also touches on the future. And why is he encouraging them with Jesus? Like, why is he encouraging them with, with Jesus Christ? Because he's trying to encourage them and share with them that when you live in the gospel story, it will shape the life that you live. The gospel story of Jesus Christ informs our past, it informs our present, and it informs our future, and it assures us of where we stand before a holy God. What he's saying is, if you live in light of any other story, you may think that you have assurance of your past, present, and your future, but it's smoke compared to this. Now, you might be asking the question, well, what is the gospel? And I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Because the gospel is God's good news for the world. The very word in Greek, gospel, means euangelion. It means good news. In that culture, what it was talking about was that at the time when a kingdom would defeat another kingdom, a rider would go out from the the kingdom that won, and it would ride throughout all of the different provinces, and it would bring the euangelion. It would bring the good news that our our kingdom is growing. It's expanding. We've defeated another nation, and we're going to continue forward. Celebrate the good news. We're growing. The kingdom has come. So when it talks about Jesus going throughout Judea and Samaria, he goes and he brings the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of God's kingdom, that God's kingdom has broken in. And that he has come to not only bring this good news, but also to fulfill this good news by living a perfect life, a perfect life that you and I could not live. And dying a death that you and I should die. And then coming back to life so that we too can be resurrected. That you and I never need to fear death. Because we have eternal life, which is life with God now and forever. This is the good news. What this means is that you can't look to yourself for your own salvation or your own saving. You must look instead to Jesus. Jesus says, that in order to do this, we must take up our cross. We must deny ourselves. 
in order that we might follow him. It means thinking about the stories in which we live and how it's shaping our lives and instead say, Jesus, I want to trust your story, the gospel story of how you bring redemption and restoration. So this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of how God is restoring the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that God wants to restore your life. He wants to redeem your life. He wants to rescue you. He wants to give you a hope and a future. He wants to give you purpose and meaning. He wants you to live in light of his kingdom. He wants you to be citizens of his kingdom. It's an amazingly good news message. We're going to transition and we're going to go to communion. And communion is an opportunity for you and for me to consider the stories that we are living and to be reminded of the great story that is the gospel story, that is the story of God, of God's creation, of the fall and of redemption and what Jesus has done and what that means for our restoration. It's a chance for those of us who are followers of Jesus to say, Jesus, I confess and I repent of the ways in which I have been living in light of a different story this week. And confess of the ways, the hopes and dreams, the redemption that I'm trying to pursue for myself, and I instead want to now submit my life to you and seek you as this hero in my story. So be the hero. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would just say, hey, don't worry about taking communion now. Our prayer is that you would one day come to know the good news of Jesus and that then one day you can participate in communion. But communion is for those of us that have committed our lives to following Jesus, who understand this story, and by taking it, actually live out this story. That as we eat the bread, we are saying, this is the broken body of Jesus, broken for me. As we take the drink, this is the cup. This is Jesus' blood shed for me. The great news of this gospel story is is connected also to the words of Jesus on the cross where he says, it is finished. So maybe it's a story that you're living in from your past that is negative, that is hateful, that is hurtful. And Jesus wants to say over your life, it is finished. Be born again into a new story and let me be the hero. As we take communion, just take the cup, take the bread, hold it, reflect upon what they mean, then I'll come back up and we'll take it all together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news, this gospel. I thank you, Jesus, that in your grace I have received it. And God, you have called me and you've called all of us to be sharers of this story with the world. God, you instruct us to worship in in awe and wonder. So God, reveal to us today the stories that we are living. I pray that you would convict our hearts. And Jesus, that we would turn to you, the greatest hero of the most amazing story. Empower us today by your spirit. We thank you for the cross. In your son's name we pray. Amen.